This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. All right, returning to the program, post-election, as we promised he would, is Stephen J. Harper, adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University, and I, I think it's fair to say expert on things related to Donald J. Trump, which certainly includes this past election. So without further ado, let me say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Thank you, Doug. It's always a pleasure. I guess we have some cause for optimism in the wake of the fact that there was no red wave. Yeah, I think the uh, the red wave hit a, a wall of something. I don't know what. I blame the media for that. The media is so quick to pick up on whatever the Republican talking points are. It's sort of remarkable to me. I, I think they've become really intimidated by what Trump has, has done over the years. I, I think it's just conditioned them so that you were hearing red wave, red wave, red wave. I'll give you an example. Nobody focused on the fact that in the final couple of weeks just before the election, all these new polls were coming out that showed, oh, boy, the Democrats are in trouble. You know, the abortion issue wasn't resonating and so on and so forth. But nobody was nobody was mentioning that the vast majority of those polls that got automatically included into the so-called aggregate polls were Republican polls. They were they were Republican pollsters that were dumped. It was a dump. It was a poll dump. We need to talk about that. Over the past generation, we've heard of pollsters who are associated with the Democrats or pollsters who are associated with the Republicans. And it's pretty clear that their mission in life is to produce polls that help the party. That's right. And, and even a casual observer, which I am when it comes to this poll stuff, um, I was watching one. They put up some numbers. Uh, uh, I think it was on MSNBC of all places, um, or maybe it was CNN. I can't remember. And CNN's made a turn to the right. That's discouraging anyway. Uh, but they were reporting on some poll that had basically indicated, well, you know, the problem that, they, that the pollsters had last time is that they under-polled or undercounted. Uh, Republicans. So I'm looking at their sample, which no one ever talks about. Uh, they throw up their sample on a on a on a screen on the on air, and it shows that you know there's this Biden disapproval rating, but the poll is 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 skewed is obviously skewed in terms of respondents uh, towards Republican respondents. So of course you're going to get you know uh, Biden disapproval ratings, and I don't doubt that there's a problem uh, relating to Biden's approval rating. But the thing to do now, I think, is just Ignore the pollsters. Just well, ignore them, you know? Well, the waters have certainly been muddied. By, and, and they were talking some years back about the term push-poll was being thrown around, which was, which was very, well, it, it's amusing on a, in a dark way that uh, they would call someone up and say, you know, does it, does it change your opinion that Senator so-and-so has been uh, is a known wife-beater? Yeah, I think there was something along those lines that was happening that, that, that was a problem for McCain in, in an early presidential primary uh, during one of his That's runs. right. Um, would, would it trouble you to know that the senator had fathered a black child or something like that? I'm not sure yes. it was in the context of a poll. Right, and he had an adopted daughter from Bangladesh they were trying to morph into an, a love child. Yes. You should just ignore all these people, you know, in the same way that people should ignore Trump. You know, there's going to be all kinds of coverage tomorrow at Mar-a-Lago. It's going to be another cliff. We've got another cliffhanger, you know, Trump working the media. The media has never figured out how to cover this guy. 
and he takes full advantage of it, even as he goes down the tube. I mean, he's, he's, you would think he would be circling the political drain. But Let's talk about that. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, people writing obituaries for Donald Trump. Personally, I look at it, the numbers I saw, I think as of two days ago, were election deniers, 168-1, 75 lost, 48 votes, uh, races were still close to call. That's, that's a substantial majority of deniers that won, if you, if you look at it from that respect. Well, that's right. And, and I took a look at, at uh, ev- an even more recent number, which was uh, from about two hours before our call. Okay. And the Washington Post now has 173 winners, election liars, um, not deniers. They're deniers, too, but I think they're just liars. If you're an election denier, you're an election liar. Got it. As I talked the last time. Uh, 105 losses and 13 too close to call. Well, 173 out of 290, uh, you're right. I mean, a lot of those were safe districts. 139, I think, with the Washington Post had estimated going into the election were safe Republican districts. Uh, but they still picked up, you know, 30 or 35 more. Um, right. And here's, here's an even more distressing thought, although it's, it's really got to be even more distressing for Kevin McCarthy if the House manage, if the GOP manages to, to win the majority. He's going to have a caucus of 218, which is what you need to to have a majority. 218, 219, I don't know, somewhere in that vicinity, 220 maybe. He'll barely have a bare majority, which is not that different from what Pelosi made, you know, accomplished miracles uh, with a similar, a similar very, very slight edge in the House. Uh, But 173 of his 218, however many they are, are, are election liars. Yeah, I mean, that's almost 80 percent of the caucus that he's dealing with are people that don't believe that in one form or another. You know, the the term has become kind of loose because, uh, you know, people are candidates were realizing that that maybe maybe they were being too hard, you know, on the you know, following the Trump train. Maybe they were being too too enthusiastic and it was getting them into some kind of trouble. So they waffled a little bit. Some of them even completely reversed course on how they felt about the 2020 election. But that's who he's going to be dealing with. And, he, right. you know, the, the notion, he's going to have a hard time, I think, cobbling together a majority on, on anything. And I think we're going to see in the if it winds up. I'm, I still have some hope along with, I guess, Michael Moore is holding out some hope that we may be, may still, the, the Democrats may still hold on to the House and, and another sort of say for democracy. But, you, you know, even if they don't, uh, it's going to be a, a real circus watching McCarthy trying to uh, trying to herd those cats. The, the other interesting thing about about this, too, so that people don't lose hope, even if it's a, a GOP majority in every Congress, um, including the one that's the current Congress that, that that's going to continue on for another couple months before they're sworn in in January, there is in, in the in the House in particular, less so far less so in the Senate. But in the House, there is there is a lot of attrition. So the 200 and however many you start with uh, are 435 altogether in both both parties. It's 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 hardly ever is it the same. In fact, I think never is it the same 435 people who finish out the term. Huh. So that in the last in the last a year and a half, for example, there have been six deaths of members of the House. Oh wow! And ten resignations. So 16 altogether: nine Republicans, seven Democrats. You have potentially, almost certainly, a slew of special elections that are going to conceivably 
flip control of the House over the period of the next couple of years, depending how how big the margin is and where the where the openings occur and, and so forth. I mean, if it's one of the it's one of the four typically blue districts of New York that that somehow flipped to uh, to the Republicans this time around, those Republican representatives are I don't know I don't know how stable that that position is going to be for them. I got to ask, is it not a peculiarity of our of our Congress that, well, when I was watching election night and it was, here's a name and is he red, here's a name, is it blue? I thought that was, that was not what the founding fathers had in mind a couple hundred years ago. But let's just say there's 218 uh, Republican seats in, in the House. At that point, do not all the committee chairs become, switch parties and become Republican? Yes, yes. And that's that's the problem. That that's the big problem. They're going you're going to have, you know, uh, probably somebody like Jim Jordan heading the House right. Judiciary Committee. Right. Um, and if you if you like Benghazi, you know, wait till you see the sequel that's coming um, with the the, the 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 everything from the withdrawal from Afghanistan to, um, you know, you name it. Uh, it's it's going to be. Well, they're going to try to do what they always do, which is create distractions and diversions and and ultimately false narratives that they can carry into the next election. I need to ask you about Barton Gelman's prediction, which we quoted on last week's program, was that if the House goes Republican, they are going to impeach uh, uh, Joe Biden. And it, the reason it doesn't even matter what reason they're going to come up with. They're going to come up with a reason and they're going to do it. What, what do you what do you say to that? Uh I think that's probably right. Although I come back to those four, those four uh, representatives in New York that um, are in solid, you know, what are typically have been solid blue districts, um, and are they going to be comfortable voting to impeach the guy that carried New York? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, it'd be interesting whether whether Bart Barton still holds to that prediction, given the, the thinness, if it holds. Right. of the Republican advantage in the House. Um, but I think there's a fair likelihood, but there's also a 100% uh, likelihood that, that it'll never get anywhere in the Senate because Schumer will kill it. Right. Um, and, and that'll be the end of that. Um, so they can do it, but it'll just be a, it'll just be a, it'll be kind of a death rattle for them. Well, one reason I was a little pessimistic about, about this election, uh, particularly in the House, was that in the wake of the census and reapportionment, it was pretty clear the Republicans were going to pick up about 10 seats just standing still, just on how they were going to redraw the lines. Right. right. So in that respect, that's another reason to think the Republicans did not do as well as they, as they hoped. No, that's right. And, and, and again, I don't want to beat the, the dead horse of New York too much, but you know the problem there was that the Democrats actually overreached uh, with a redistricting map. It got thrown out by the court in New York. Um, and then they wound up with this thing that was, you know, put somebody like Sean Patrick Maloney uh, moving to a different district. That never turns out well. I mean, ask Mehmet Oz what it's like to move someplace where you're going to try to get elected where you've never lived. <laughs> well, that kind of went out with the 19th century in terms of popularity. But um, so, so uh, yeah, you're right. It's it, it, if you look at it in that respect, then the Democrats actually did did well. They did they did clearly better than. Most people thought they would. There were there were a few, I guess, who thought they would. Do, do, but this it was historic. I mean, right. here's the other thing that no one's talking about. This is the first time since George W. Bush 
in in 2002 in the wake of 9/11 and his tremendous popularity after that. This is the first time since 2002 that the incumbent president's party hasn't lost more seats. Uh, it's the fewest number of seats this time around. Uh, in in the t- 2002, George W. Bush actually gained a couple of seats right. for his party. Um, and, it, and, the, and if you want to go back to a Democrat, an incumbent Democrat gaining seats in a midterm, you've got to go all the way back to John Kennedy in 1962. It was a historic win. There's a ray of sunshine in all of this, and that something we've discussed at great length was that the electoral machinery in various states was where the rubber really meets the road in some of these efforts to, you know, looking forward to 2024. And as far as I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, none of the election liar Secretary of State candidates won. In the swing states, that's exactly correct. And frankly, that's what I was most worried about. I think the House is important, obviously. The Senate's important because it means Biden can continue to to put qualified judges on the federal bench to to neutralize, to some degree, some of the hacks. And they aren't all hacks. I don't know how they slip through, but I I actually know a couple of the judges that wound up being appointed by Trump, and and, and they're very good. They're they're good, solid, and it's a shame because they sort of tarred. You know, now you're if you're a Trump judge, you're kind of tarred with broader brush, but. Yeah, you're you're exactly correct, and and they lost they lost not only they lose they lost big time. Yeah. Uh, they lost in in Michigan. The, the entire state now is blue. All all of the all of the brand the, the up and down the the election machinery, and in the legislature uh, and in the judiciary. So Michigan is is a clean sweep. Yeah. Well, speaking of judges, uh, there was uh, one analysis that I kind of sent a cold chill up my spine. It said if the House goes back, to, well, which is if the Senate goes to being Republican again, which it now it's clear it's not going to do. Mitch McConnell could have held up every single judicial appointment that, that Biden has made until for, for two years. That's right. And I'm confident he would have. He certainly would have held any Supreme Court appointment. He might have, he might have figured out, uh, he probably would have negotiated some, he probably would have negotiated some uh, lower federal court appointments in return for getting some of his own uh, selections on or for getting something else. But fortunately, we don't have to deal with him. And and I was thinking that probably one of the angriest senators in the country right now uh, is Mitch McConnell, because all he's ever wanted is to be a majority leader of the Senate. Right. He doesn't he didn't want to be president. He didn't want to be a judge. He, he has wanted his ambition was he achieved it for four years uh, with uh, with Obama and yeah, four years Trump. Well, we certainly have to feel feel for Mitch. <laughs> yeah, and he's got to be furious because Trump cost him. I, I really believe this. You know, you're seeing all these articles coming out now saying, well, Trump didn't cost them. Trump absolutely cost them. Not everything, clearly. I mean, you, you can see he, 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 all, all the election liars and Trump and Dorsey's won in a lot of what I would call lower-profile contests, a lower-public-profile Um but he lost. He lost. And you know he lost because he goes right on his social media platform and, and starts screaming. Um, and, he, and he complains about this. And he, you know, he's, he's the worst poker, poker player ever. You know, uh, but his, his guys, his, his celebrity candidates were on the line. And the one place you could point to uh, where you could say, well, he, he probably got this guy through the, you know, across the finish line was is J.D. Vance in Ohio. Right, uh, but Oz, Oz was a disaster, um, okay. and uh, Herschel Walker. We'll see what happens, okay. but I think 
I don't think he's. I, I'd be. I'll be surprised if he if he wins. I think the Republicans who turned out for this election for the for the midterm turned out to vote for Brian Kemp on the Republican ticket. Kemp is supporting Walker. It's not going to be easy to to get those voters back. Yeah. Well, Brian Kemp's a topic we should save for another day because he's deserving of a few minutes all all by himself. But oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's, he the fact that he's in any kind of decent standing at all just shows you how far the bar has fallen in the Republican Party. And and DeSantis is also a good one to save for another day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just want to bounce this off of you. Um, to my mind, the fact that there's a there's uproar against Trump, to me, to my mind, might reflect the fact that there are Republicans that are certainly not in Trump's camp that are seeing this as an opportunity to to, to move him to the sidelines. Do, do you do you think that's some of what's going on? Maybe, although I'm I'd be very cautious in making any predictions. You know, rumors of his death are greatly exaggerated. You know, uh, the old Mark Twain line. Yeah. Because we've seen this we've seen this movie before. I mean, on J- January eighth or something, a seventh, uh, right after the uh, the riot uh, and the attack on the Capitol, um, Kevin McCarthy went on the floor of the House and said, he, "You know, House uh, Trump shares the blame for this." And, before the month was over, he was down there kissing the guy's ring. So, you know, Mitch McConnell was saying, you know, on the floor of the Senate in January, as he cast a vote that he probably wishes he had cast the other way right now, because it would have taken Trump completely out of the political picture forever, uh, said, you know, I'm going to vote to acquit him because there are other processes, uh, blah, 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 and he can be held to account that way. Um, you know, but it, but he but he, and then he then issued a, a, a speech that, that just excoriated him, right? And and we've even seen it in the Fox media where they turn on him only to sort of come back into the fold because what it ultimately t- depends upon is what's Trump's base doing, what's he gonna f- and what will he free them to do? The reason that DeSantis has got a really big dilemma, he's he's got to somehow court the Trump base. Um, and figure out a way to get Trump to support him when we all know that Trump isn't going to do anything that isn't helping Trump. And I don't think, I don't think Trump is capable of, say, of stepping back and saying, you know, um, this is the guy that you should all go to. He, he loves those people. He, he wants his people. Yeah. It's the same people that were attacking the Capitol. Yeah. He wants them locked and loaded, you know, be ready. You know, it's, well, they made it, it's a deal with the devil, and, and the, yeah. the devil now controls a giant chunk of the base and a huge chunk of Kevin McCarthy's caucus yeah. uh, in the House of Representatives. And I don't know how you get rid of that very easily. Well, one thing I don't want to spend more than about 45 seconds on, but I do want to throw out there is, you know, whatever whatever happening to Donald Trump in, in this election did not do well is nothing we can attribute to the actions of Merrick Garland. That's all I want to say. That's all I want to say. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm still hoping for an indictment. Soon, sooner rather than later. Although, frankly, even if Trump announces that he's a candidate for president, it won't make any difference to what what Garland does. I I, I continue to believe that Trump will be indicted. I I hope you're right. We keep having a lot of fun. I don't know whether you ever listened to our broadcast, or we've we've uh, had, we've gone to Merrick Garland's spokesman on several occasions, to which we then play chicken sounds out of the the, the coop. <laughs> No, here's the thing. He's going to indict him, but he's going to indict him when he has every I dotted, every T crossed, 
when he can win a conviction, when he's when he's sure he can win that conviction, like a ninety percent okay. probability. And you know, well, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. There's something to be said for attention deficit disorder, but I'm not sure it really uh, is, is a big positive in his case. But okay. All right. Uh, all right. There's another big story that I'm I'm just itching to ask you about. Uh, being that you are a bona fide expert on Russiagate, and and before I even get into this, could you please plug your website again, which has which is encyclopedic in its in its presentation of of, of data related to Russia and Trump? Yeah, you, if you just go to BillMoyers.com, right on the landing page, it has a, a a group of special collections, uh, one of which is my Trump Russia Ukraine timeline, another one is my insurrection timeline. And another is my pandemic uh, timeline, and uh, it's in, and not surprisingly, there is a point at which the RussiaGate timeline gives way to the insurrection timeline. Uh, yes, yes, and and it is encyclopedic, as I say. I, I'm happy to note we have talked about a lot of this on, on this program, which leads us to someone I hope who I hope took advantage of, of your website, Jim Rutenberg, a writer for the New York Times magazine. He put out a piece a little while ago, looks a few weeks ago, I guess, titled The Untold Story of Russiagate and the Road to War in Ukraine, which is quite a barn burner, and I wanted to just throw that one out at you. I mean, I, I, think, you, I think you would agree that he's laying it out properly. Yes, I think he's laying it out completely correctly. Um, and you know now we're going to talk about the thing that uh, some listeners and, and some and those who aren't listeners we don't care about. But some listeners some listeners will say, "Oh no, not the Russia thing again." No, that was a hoax. That was a hoax. Well, let's let's so let's start with a real basic proposition here. Um, it, it was not a hoax. It was never a hoax. And all you have to do is keep three things in mind to satisfy yourself that this is real and it was a danger and it was a threat. And that Trump is a is a lethal threat to, to democracy and, and the world. Um, and the three things are, number one, back in 2016, Putin wanted Trump to win. Number two, Trump and his campaign embraced the help from Putin. And number three, in every investigation into what went on between Trump and Russia, Trump as president did everything he could to obstruct those investigations. Um, and... So then the yeah. question is, why? And the answer, I think, is, at least in substantial part, Ukraine. And you're now seeing it. And I thought I have thought that there is a thread that runs all the way through right. from right. Uh, Trump running for president and, and um, the Trump-Russia timeline and you, the help that Putin gave Trump to win that election all the way through and including Trump's impeachment over Ukraine. Yeah. And now we can add now we can add the the, the denouement, if you will, which is Putin's uh, unsuccessful to date in attack on Ukraine, and it's all part of the same thread. It's all right. part of the same thread. And if you want to find out where, if you want to think about where it really comes from, you got to go back to Putin in 2005 when he addressed the nation when he was speaking to Parliament, and he said, "The collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical." catastrophe of the 20th century. So what Putin has been after since then is to rebuild the Russian empire. And one of the places that he wants to do that is Ukraine. And when Trump won the election, the Duma, which is a puppet kind of Congress, I guess you would call it, 
erupted in applause. And shortly before the election, two of his aides, and this is all on the timeline that you, met, you, you so generously allowed me to plug, said, great, with Trump's victory, we can now move and accomplish our objectives that we're seeking to accomplish, including Ukraine. Well, so, yes. there you go. And you plug into Rutenberg. Rutenberg's got it right. You know, you go to in 2014, back to Putin and invades Crimea. He hates the sanctions. But we, but nobody mounts any real resistance that is along the way in the West, other than economic sanctions, which are which are significant. They they do impose a significant hardship on on Putin and on Russia. It's in 2016 that you get this these these surreptitious behind the scenes. Paul Manafort and his his uh, business colleague Kalim, Konstantin Kalimnik, who is reported by the by our government to have ties to Russian intelligence. For, Floating a plan, a plan for peace in Ukraine. And what's the plan? And, and if any of this sounds familiar to people who are following foreign policy, it should. The plan is, how about Russia keeps Crimea on a 99-year lease uh, for the next 99 years, and we let them let the eastern, you know, provinces uh, vote on whether they want to be autonomous republics. Um, these are provinces, of course, where Putin and his and his military have led a, a, a harsh uh, resistance for, since the invasion of Crimea. And what he wants to do is have a quote-unquote election, which would be a joke, in which those people would then declare, oh, look, we want to be Russian, and then Putin can recognize that as a separate country, and then, boom, he's got another right. satellite in what is one of the most valuable regions of Ukraine. Meanwhile, meanwhile, what's Paul Manafort doing? He's creating a false narrative that, Hey, it's not Russia that inter- that was yes. interfering with the U.S. Yes. election. It was Ukraine. It was Ukraine, yeah. which is complete BS. You know, Trump's own national security advisor, Fiona Hill, testified that it was a a complete fiction, and that the even the some of the con- the rep- Republican representatives who were trying to defend Trump by making those arguments were simply promoting the Russian narrative. In what was the one of the finest hours, I think, of the entire impeachment was her calling them out. Uh, the, the hearings, anyway. It's, there's a thread that runs all the way through, and if you, there are a couple of couple of little little episodes that I would have included if I had been Rudenberg's editor. And and one was, I don't know if you remember this or not, but there was a meeting between Michael Cohen, Trump's then trusted legal advisor, okay. Okay. in late January of 2017, right after the election, and Felix Sater, who is uh, like the Forrest Gump of Trump world. He appears everywhere. He's in just different business deals with Trump. He's been on and off forever, although Trump says he wouldn't know who he was if he right. walked into a room, he said in one deposition. And a guy named uh, Andrei Artemenko, who was a, at the time a Ukrainian uh, politician, and they presented to Michael Cohen, guess what, a Ukrainian peace plan. And Cohen said to the New York Times that he put it on, guess who, Mike, national security advisor Mike Flynn's desk. Well, unfortunately for Flynn, he never got, apparently never got to it because he was exposed and ultimately had to resign in disgrace uh, a week or two later. Because of contacts with Russian people. That's right. Russian that he had had lied about. And and Sater and Cohen and Artemenko had met in the lobby of a Manhattan Lowe's hotel where Sater and Artemenko gave Cohen this plan uh, that Cohen was then supposed to take to the White House. Presumably, he did. 
it's, but it's the same plan. It was, it's, it's all the same stuff, right? And, and so what does Putin do? He invades Ukraine. And, and what, his, what was his most recent ploy, uh, relatively loose recent at least? It would say, you know what I think we should do? I think we should recognize these separate regions of Donetsk, of eastern Ukraine. We should let them hold separate elections. And then once they decide what they want, we can decide we'll recognize them. And look at what's happened. So there's a through line. It runs all the way through. And now you just have to add one more little piece. And that is, of course, Trump in, in 2020, when he thinks he's cleared the uh, Mueller, Mueller problem by completely getting his attorney general, Bill Barr, to completely spin that thing out of existence so the public wouldn't pay any attention to it. Um, and says to, uh, to Volodymyr Zelensky, um, gee whiz, you know, um, I'd like you to do me a little favor. You want some arms to defend yourself against the Russian tiger. Well, we'd like to do that. You know, we've been a good friend of yours. We've been a good friend. Nice little country you have there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. But maybe you can find some dirt on Biden because he's going to be running against me for president of the United States. It's a through line. It's a through line. It goes all the way from start to finish. And it explains why Putin's interested in Ukraine. It explains Trump's symbiotic relationship with Putin. And it explains everything. You know, the icing on the cake is because Putin knows how to work Trump even better than Trump knows how to work the media. Because Putin can say, hey, you know what, Uh, how about a Trump Hotel Moscow? All right, we're speaking with Stephen J. Harper on this case about Russiagate and the road to war in Ukraine, a wonderful article in the New York Times, which he is analyzing for us, piece by Jim Rutenberg. We need to talk more about it. Let's do that after a short break. This is Radio Parallax.